Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Hotels.com, the world's leading online accommodation site. Now, I travel a fair bit. And every time I go away, I make sure to book through Hotels.com because they provide the best prices for hotels, vacations, Airbnbs, resorts, etc., etc., etc. You want a seaside apartment in my hometown in North Vancouver? You want a beautiful rental property in surf-friendly Costa Rica? Or perhaps you want to travel to Quebec City to visit the Plains of Abraham or maybe even a trip to Normandy to see Juneau Beach. Whatever it is, this website will find you the best place quickly and with the best possible price. What I love about the website is that they have a price guarantee. If you find a lower price elsewhere, they will match it. Plus, their mobile app is super easy to use, which helps immensely when I'm on the move. So for the listeners of Cool Canadian History, Hotels.com is offering $30 off select hotel stays of $250 or more. Go to usehotels.com slash coolcanadianhistory and punch in the code LISTEN30 when you make your purchase. So that's usehotels.com slash cool Canadian history and punch in the code listen 30 l-i-s-t-e-n 30 when you make your purchase there's really no point in booking elsewhere as hotels.com has everything you need travel easy today and book hotels.com hello and welcome to cool Canadian history I'm your host David Boris. Today, Season 4, Episode 7, The Assassination of Darcy McGee. Thomas Darcy McGee was an Irish nationalist turned Canadian patriot who played a crucial role in bringing about Canadian Confederation, but so roused the ire of Irish nationalists in Canada and the U.S., and in particular the infamous Fenian Brotherhood, that he met his fate at the hands of an assassin's bullet. Today's book recommendation is David A. Wilson's biography of Thomas Darcy McGee, published by McGill Queen's University Press, Volume 1 came out in 2007, and Volume 2 came out in 2011. Now, it is a thick two-volume read, but provides an immensely well-crafted narrative of the man's life, while also tying him into the bigger global and national issues affecting Ireland, Britain, the United States, and Canada during the period of the 1840s to McGee's death in 1868. 
Thomas Darcy McGee was born in April of 1825 in Carlingford, Ireland, to an Irish Catholic family. While his parents were of modest means, his father worked with the Irish Coast Guard, Darcy, as he was commonly known, was given a good education, where he devoured literature on the history of Ireland and Anglo-Irish relations. His mother passed away in 1830, and his father remarried to a woman whom Darcy and his sister did not get along with. By 1842, this relationship had completely soured life at home, so Darcy and his sister sailed from Ireland to the United States. Once in the United States, Darcy settled in Boston, where he received employment as the editor of a Catholic newspaper known as the Boston Pilot, actually a newspaper still in circulation as the official paper of the Archdiocese of Boston, which claims to be the oldest Catholic newspaper in all of the United States. By 1844, he was the lead editor and became known within literary circles as someone supporting the movement for Irish self-determination, specifically showing support for Irish nationalist Daniel O'Connell. It was during this time, too, that he wrote favorably about the union of the United States with the Canadas, the two colonies of Canada West and Canada East, respectively. In 1845, he returned to Ireland, taking up a position with a newspaper known as The Nation. This paper became the voice of the Young Ireland Movement. The Young Ireland Movement was a radical nationalist movement that emerged in Ireland in the early 1840s. During this period back in Ireland, he married a Catholic woman named Mary Teresa Caffrey, and they had six children. Sadly, only two would ever outlive their own father. In 1848, Darcy was a participant in the infamous Young Islander Rebellion, famously known in Ireland as the Battle of Ballingarry. This was essentially a shootout between members of the Young Islander movement and Irish police. McGee's involvement in this affair led to a warrant for his arrest, and once again, he found himself on a boat to the United States, this time fleeing the arm of the Anglo-Irish law. Now, interestingly, during this period in exile, McGee would undergo a fairly dramatic transformation. When he arrived on the shores of the United States, once again, McGee still embraced the young Islander vision of an independent Ireland. Though in McGee's vision, this independent Ireland would then take its place alongside Great Britain as an equal within a larger cooperative commonwealth. This made him quite a moderate within Irish nationalist circles. But while living in Boston, he slowly came to the realization that Irish Catholics in the United States were suffering intense discrimination and were trapped in squalor and poverty within urban America. He contrasted this with what he saw as a far more accepting life for Irish Catholics in Canada one that stemmed from the political and social influence of French Catholics in that region, effectively ensuring some form of toleration for Catholics in general. In McGee's mind, even the tension between Irish Catholics and Protestants in the Canadas was significantly less violent than that in the USA. McGee began to openly advocate for Irish migration to Canada, 
a position which made him more and more unpopular in the U.S. Irish Republicans denounced him as anti-Irish for advocating the Irish move to a colony of the British Empire. American nativists condemned him as being anti-American. And Irish-American nationalists attacked him as being both anti-Irish and anti-American. His stance meant that by the mid-1850s, McGee was a politically and socially isolated figure within the Irish nationalist movement. By 1856, he had privately signaled his intention to move north, supported by a growing group of Irish Catholics in Canada who embraced McGee's vision of a more tolerant Anglo-Irish-Canadian relationship. Thus, in the spring of 1857, Darcy McGee entered Canada, forever abandoning his belief in the Union of Canada and the United States. While in Canada, McGee began to champion the concept of a union of the British North American colonies, Canada West, Canada East, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland. His idea was to bring them together into a powerful political and economic bloc, one that would take over and settle the western half of the continent still controlled by the Hudson's Bay Company. He saw in this potential union an opportunity to achieve a high level of legislative autonomy, eventually leading to this new political union becoming an equal to the British in a larger cooperative commonwealth. Essentially, the same vision he had for Ireland, but now for Canada. In essence, McGee saw in the union of British North America a new political entity that could ensure not just the survival of Irish Catholics, but provide opportunities for them to thrive. Now, I guess our question is, why would an Irish Catholic nationalist still want a Canada to remain in the British Empire? Well, for McGee, he called it the Golden Link. The threat of annexation or secession to the United States would mean that the British government would respect Canada's move towards responsible government, while the Golden Link with Great Britain meant the United States could not and would not attempt to annex Canada into it. He even briefly advocated for a member of the royal family to actually come and form a Canadian branch of the British monarchy to ensure Canada's continued tie to Great Britain's military might, though this was short-lived. Thus, by the late 1850s, Darcy McGee was effectively advocating for the union of British North America into a new nation called Canada something that was starting to pick up greater and greater political momentum. Just a quick reminder, everybody, before we continue on, you can find us on all of your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and of course at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you go to our Facebook page or website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. With PayPal, you can just make a one-time donation, and that's that. Patreon's kind of interesting because with Patreon, you can sign up and you can commit to donating something like a dollar for every episode released. As well... 
On our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. So, in 1858, on the back of this new sort of confederationist platform, McGee was elected to the Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada, representing an Irish Catholic neighborhood in Montreal. At the same time, he attended McGill University, where by 1861, he had received his law degree. In 1863, he received the portfolio of Minister of Agriculture, Immigration, and Statistics within the ruling Conservative government. By 1864, he was appointed as one of the delegates to the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences. These were the two conferences where the idea of a new Canadian nation were agreed upon by representatives from Canada West, Canada East, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. PEI wouldn't join till much later, and Newfoundland till much, much later. His participation in these conferences effectively enshrines him as one of the fathers of Confederation. In fact, it was at the Quebec Conference where McGee himself introduced a resolution for a guarantee by the new Canadian state for the education rights of religious minorities, effectively championing the rights of Catholics within this soon-to-be new nation. At the same time that McGee was skyrocketing up the political ranks within Canada, a growing Irish nationalist movement was developing in the United States the Fenian Brotherhood. Essentially made up of Irish-American Civil War veterans, this organization sought to invade Canada to either capture it and trade it back to the British for Irish independence, or later to invade it in order to draw British troops to Canada while a rebellion rose up in Ireland to finally throw off British rule and create effectively an Irish free republic. While of course a Catholic, and still an Irish nationalist at heart, McGee denounced the Fenians, especially those within Canada who had joined or shown public support. It is estimated that about 5% of the Irish Catholics in Montreal had joined the organization. McGee was relentless in his public condemnation of Fenians and their movement. He wrote, for instance, Seditious societies are like what the farmers of Ireland used to say of Scotch grass that the only way to destroy it was to cut it up by the roots, burn it to powder, and cast the ashes to the four winds. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, McGee's constant public attacks against what he saw as a seditious and dangerous movement slowly lost him support amongst many Irish Catholics in Montreal and elsewhere. In fact, in response to McGee's constant public attacks, a variety of Irish-Canadian newspapers began to call McGee a British lackey and a traitor to Irish people everywhere. Though McGee did continue to get elected in his riding in Montreal West, which shows us that not all Irish Catholics were willing to abandon this man. 
His aggressive stance against the Fenians, however, would prove his undoing. On 7 April 1868, McGee was walking back from a parliamentary debate in Ottawa when he was shot and killed. When people found him, there was no sign of the assassin. McGee was given a state funeral in Ottawa, said to have been attended by 80,000 people in a city of only 105,000, one of the largest public funerals in Canadian history. Now, the story does not at all stop there, because in the aftermath, investigators arrested a known Irish Catholic Fenian, a man named Patrick J. Whalen, and charged him with the murder of McGee. But the case against Whalen has since drawn interest from conspiracy theorists aplenty. When Whalen was arrested, in his apartment was found Irish revolutionary literature and a revolver, which had indeed been fired within the last 24 hours, so within the time frame that McGee was shot. Several witnesses testified that he had talked openly about killing McGee. Police even said Whalen boasted about killing McGee while in his jail cell, which seems ludicrous. Finally, a French-Canadian lumberjack named Jean-Baptiste Lacroix said he actually saw Whalen shoot McGee. It seemed like the case was airtight. Whalen's defense attorney, however, was one of the best lawyers in the country, former Grand Master of the Protestant Orange Order, John Hilliard Cameron. The prosecution was led by notable Irish Catholic James O'Reilly. Thus, an Irish Catholic accused was going to be prosecuted by a fellow Irish Catholic while defended by a staunch Irish Protestant. How ironic. Cameron very quickly began poking holes in the various claims against Whalen. Most notably, he was able to show that Lacroix had either been entirely incompetent or outright lied simply for the reward money, which was set at $2,000 for information leading to the arrest of McGee's killer. Lacroix was proven unable to even identify Whalen while actually in prison. He simply couldn't point the man out. Cameron was also able to effectively challenge the witnesses' claims that Whalen had boasted about planning to kill McGee, stating simply, why would an assassin publicly boast about their intended assassination? Despite Lacroix's testimony being thrown out, the forensic evidence on the gun, coupled with Whalen's Fenian involvement, and the numerous witness testimonies that he talked, stalked, or openly admitted to killing McGee, led to Whalen being found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Whalen always maintained his innocence, though at the time of his death, he admitted that he was present when McGee was assassinated, but he was not the killer, though he knew who the killer was. While most people believed Whalen had indeed assassinated McGee, many still felt that the trial had been a sham. However, a century later, most questions were put to rest when a 1973 forensic test showed that the fatal bullet had indeed been compatible with Whalen's gun. The bullet, actually, that killed McGee had been found jammed in a doorway. Without a doubt, Whalen was an accessory to the assassination, though it may never be solved if he was the man who actually pulled the trigger. That is the case the assassin of Darcy McGee, one of the fathers of Confederation, 
will probably never be known. Before we break, I just wanted to point out that this will be the last episode of 2018. And I want to thank all of you out there in cool history land for your continued and growing support of this podcast. You know, when this podcast began, we had barely 50 listeners. Now we have thousands downloading each episode. We have nearly a thousand followers on Facebook and we have hundreds following us on Instagram. It's amazing to see so many people interested in Canadian history as well. This podcast could not continue without the support of our listenership. For all those who have donated this year or become a Patreon supporter, I cannot thank you enough. I wish each and every one of you the best of the holiday season and a happy new year. And we will see you in 2019 with the continuation of season four. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool.